Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Hi, David. Hello, Jeremy. Feels like it's been a while. It has been a while, and we've both been all over the place. Today is Lackluster Friday, which is the Friday that comes after Super Tuesday. Is that a thing? It, no, but it feels like okay. a thing. I do feel, I feel that. But hanging out with our listeners, we will feel lack or or full luster full or, luster? or a scar, um, <laughs> abundant luster this, by the end of this okay. program. That's right. Well, let's luster on. And we uh, shall. How did Super Tuesday find you? I think that the political events of the last two weeks have been astonishing and i actually find myself hopeful but the hopefulness i recognize may reflect more about me and my background than about reality so hmm. I mean, um so how how we engage politics says at least as much about what we see from behind our eyes as what we see in front of our eyes. And so I'd love to explore that with you today. Yeah, at a level we, we're doing sort of perception is reality sort of stuff. We we right. do create the world around us by how we encounter it. And in my background, having come out of Southern evangelicals, very Republican, um, I was raised in a, a staunchly Republican home. My high school, I remember when, um, this is a wonderful moment. We watched the inauguration of Barack Obama, my um, junior class did, sitting in the school library, and we wept along with the teacher because the Antichrist had taken over America. It was perfectly acceptable and reasonable and heard from faculty that Barack Obama was likely the Antichrist and that we should prepare. So that's that's baked into me wow. at some level. I have I have a really neat credential in that I've never voted for a presidential candidate that's won. Good, good for you. <laughs> I've never picked a winner. And the world still still turns. It might be because I've never picked a winner that wow. the world still turns. Oh, interesting. Um well, let me uh maybe talk a little bit about my political background. Um and and then maybe we can move into talking about what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. I discovered, to my surprise, when I was going through um, my notebooks and, year, and and yearbooks and all the 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 detritus of my life when I was writing my memoir, still available by the way, still Christian. People still write me about it and say the book speaks to them. Anyway, advertisement is over. Yep, it's all it's all on uh, Amazon. Go find it. Right. But my 1976 middle school yearbook has a note to me from the most obnoxious student in the eighth grade who said... Um, it's amazing how that sort of thing sticks with sticks. you. I There's mean, someone was, saying that about me on a podcast somewhere. <laughs> that was 44 years ago. And this young man said, well, all the best to you, even if you do support the peanut farmer from Georgia. And what was interesting about that was, well, why would I have this this boy write in my yearbook anyway? But but the second thing is, I, in 1976, as a 14-year-old, had a political opinion, and I, I liked Jimmy Carter. So that's interesting to me. I, I did not remember that. Um, and and uh, even though my my uh, most of my family is staunchly Republican, but it's it's kind of a 
it's not a Bible Belt Republicanism because that's not my background. Mm -hmm. But I've always leaned Democrat and have, I believe, have voted Democrat in every presidential election that I've had opportunity since 1980. So, and there are reasons why uh, that I think I can, I do and can ground biblically and theologically. So anyway, um, I, I do not believe that Christians should fundamentally identify with a political party. Uh, and, but I also don't think that what happens in American or any other politics is irrelevant to, from a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. So, and I think everybody who has read my writings in any, in any setting knows how desperately I, I believe uh, we went wrong with uh, uh, electing Donald Trump and how desperately I hope that our country uh, repudiates this mistake in the fall of 2020. And so I'll say that clearly. It's not a surprise to anybody who follows my work. Right. But so I would also mention that I grew up in the shadow of Northern Virginia. I mean, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Uh, uh, the families that lived around us were most of them government civil servants. Mm -hmm. So federal Are government. Are you a part of the deep state? The swamp, in fact. Um, so, you know, around the corner is a CIA agent and over there is somebody from the State Department. And my dad worked for the Library of Congress. And, you know, across the street is somebody who did health and human services. And my father-in-law uh, ended up working for 40 years plus for the Department of Education. And so, so that's just my world. And I, I have a deep respect for uh, federal government civil service as it developed really since the 60s. I, I, it was, in my view, filled with highly competent professionals trying to do a good job for the country. And I think it's part of what some people might call the deep state. Some of us would call the, the sinews and muscles that keep our government functioning. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so... So to have somebody come in and not just trash that world rhetorically, but over the course of the last couple of years, trash it literally, uh, weaken it, attack it, and remove uh, a lot of its strength, or as much of its strength as he's been able to get to, has, all, has, has struck me as horrifying. And, uh, and I think that actually with the coronavirus right now and the weakness so far of our government response, uh, we're seeing some of the consequences of weakening the federal government when we need it. But, and we could talk about that some more if you want. Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, so I believe that it is in our country's best interest for the Democratic Party to put together a viable platform, candidate, and you know ticket for the fall of 2020. And my moderate political instincts had me fairly horrified at the prospect that Bernie Sanders was going to be that nominee because the moderate side was so divided right, among all those candidates. And so the fact that all of that cleared away in the last uh, 10 to 12 days as we are recording is, is one of the most astonishing things I've ever seen. I follow politics closely and have since, you know, I guess 1976. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. The, I, and I saw, I think you made a post on Facebook, and I read it a few days, I think it's a few days old, so yeah. I, I may have this wrong, but I think you compared, you contrasted what has happened in the democratic field of 2020 to what didn't happen in the Republican field 
of were they running 22 people at one point? I believe in 2016, it was 17. The Democrats had more of this go around at the beginning, but the Republicans had 17 candidates and and they wouldn't go away. Uh, well, yeah, they wouldn't go away except Trump. Trump uh, started started beating them until at a pivotal moment about this time in the process, they were down to something like four. It was four serious candidates. Mm -hmm. It was Trump, Marco Rubio from Florida, mm -hmm. Ted Cruz. Cruz from Texas, and John Kasich from Ohio. And now these were different kind of candidates. Kasich was more moderate. And again, my tendency is I like moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats. I'm a swamp creature. I'll face it. <laughs> um, people who have some experience running government who know how things are supposed to work, who are not likely to burn it down. And um, But they all wouldn't get out of the way if they had gotten out of the – if everybody but one, like, I don't know, Rubio or everybody but Kasich or whatever – had gotten out of the way, it is possible that Trump could have been stopped. He was the most radical of all of their candidates, and that's what people wanted, I mm -hmm. guess. Loud voices. He was the most. Too. He was the loudest. He was the most xenophobic. He was the most anti-government, and frankly, I thought he was the most racist. He was also. He he was. Um, he was the most um, reactive. Uh, to everything that had happened over the previous eight years. Right. Yeah. So he won. So so the contrast was, it sure looked like, I mean, a magazine arrived in my in our mailbox yesterday, had a big picture of Bernie Sanders on the cover, and it said, is he going to be the nominee? And that's because, you know how production lead times work? Mm -hmm. When that magazine was produced, Ten days ago, it looked like he was going to he be the candidate. Taken Iowa and and, and people Nevada, were excited. Uh, and yeah, um, the few states that had voted, it looked really favorable for him. And the, there were still a bunch of candidates in there. Right. So, I think the it is true that the Democrats are deeply divided between a more of a radical left and a moderate center left. And so the center left lane was clogged up with Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar. Michael Bloomberg, um, Joe Biden. Um, we promise that today there will be no Bloomberg ads <laughs> on this podcast. I mean, I, I was hearing Bloomberg ads on my sports talk radio station at seven in the morning. I thought, dude, you are everywhere. My favorite. Okay. So I listened to um, WSB, WASB, WSB, our WSB. local radio talk station, yep. which swings fairly right. We're in Atlanta. Um, yeah. But I was listening to the morning roundup show and they were making fun of Bloomberg and then it cut to commercial Bloomberg ad. <laughs> uh, he was he was everywhere. So. So it looked like what was going to happen was Bernie Sanders was going to sweep or, or do very well on Super Tuesday, even with just 35 or 40 percent of the vote, because everybody else would have eight or 10 or 12 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And and the. the in most states, I believe the threshold for even getting any delegates at all is fifteen percent. Right. So if you if you had five candidates getting ten, eight, six, twelve, uh, Bernie would get all the delegates, and we would have Bernie Sanders as our nominee. Now I know uh, from my Facebook page that some of my friends are ardent Bernie Bernernistas, Sandernistas, yeah. San <laughs> Sandernistas, and Bernie Bros. Bernie Bros. Uh, <laughs> and um, and so. Um, Here's here's another kind of example. How do we see politics? 
I considered Bernie very far left, just as I consider Trump very far right on a populist spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me the the prospect that we might have a choice between a far the furthest left candidate in American history and a the furthest right in terms of populist reactionary xenophobia. Yeah, they're both a little bit caricatures right. of our political landscape. That with a great uh, yawning lack of a of a centrist type candidate, it had me it had me thinking about 1928 in Germany. Now, not too many people in this country on a daily basis are thinking much about 1928 in Germany, but I do because that's what my dissertation was about. And what happened in 1922 and 26 and 28 and 30 and 32 in Germany was that reeling post-World War I country with a weak parliamentary democracy as economic stresses spiked, the left went further left, the right went further right, and the center disappeared Mm -hmm. or weakened and gradually disappeared. And the left was communist and socialist, and the right was militarist and nationalist and eventually Nazi. And they were beating each other up in the streets and competing at the ballot box and finally, and dividing the vote together with some some in between parties. And finally, the Nazi party came to power with the maximum vote before Hitler came to power of 37%. It was enough. So Hitler was named chancellor on the basis of a 37% vote. And that happened on January 30th, 1933, when he took power. And within six months, democracy was dead. And all the other parties had been banned. And the socialists and communists were already beginning to be in jail. And and so whenever I see politics heading to the extremes and the middle evaporating, I think of 1920s Germany. Mm-hmm. And just as I believe that Trump doesn't especially have a democratic bone in his body, and that that is he doesn't think much about democracy, he doesn't think in terms of our democratic categories like rule of law, I think Sanders has some worrisome tendencies uh, along those lines as well. Whether that would have proved to be the case, again, I may, we hopefully will never find out. So it looks to me like the Democratic voters and establishment, the majority, all kind of got a shock at the same time about this is really happening. Yeah, this is really happening around February 28th or something, or thereabouts. Oh my goodness, we're about to nominate Bernie Sanders. Then, of course, all the clips of Bernie Sanders' past comments were played. You know, Bernie Sanders on the lovely literacy program in Cuba. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders uh, heading to the Soviet Union for his honeymoon. Honeymoon. And, you know, uh, stuff like that. And not to mention the $30 trillion of spending that were being proposed, if it was, might even be more than that. So, So the Democrats started to worry. Uh, and then South Carolina comes along, the South Carolina primary, and all of a sudden Joe Biden, after a miserable beginning to the campaign for him, sweeps the field in South Carolina. And then, um, in what I think is going to go down in history as as uh, maybe even republic saving, first Tom Steyer, the the millionaire or billionaire actually, the, 
No um, one remembered was running. Right. Uh, he he pulls out, doesn't endorse anybody. And then a day or so later, um, Pete Buttigieg, who I considered a very promising, I do consider a very promising young man. He's one to watch. He is. He pulls out and endorses uh, Biden. And then Amy Klobuchar, who also I think is very promising, pulls out and endorses Biden. And then um, after Bloomberg gets beat up pretty badly on Super Tuesday with with um, Biden sweeping the South and, and Bernie getting three or four states out West mainly, uh, plus his home state, uh, Bloomberg pulls out and endorses Biden and says... Bob, Even though he had American Samoa. He did have American Samoa. He was going to be the, the king of American Samoa. Um, and then uh, he says, by the way, my money and my staff are going to be available to defeat Donald Trump. Um, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to spend another half billion dollars on basically ads uh, taking down Donald Trump. They will still start with, hi, I'm Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> I, I approve this ad. <laughs> um, so now as we speak, it's down to Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And it looks to me like... Tulsi Gabbard's still in there, yeah, pulling at 1%, at 1%. But she's still in. Yeah, that's weird. Um, it looks to me like... Um, like Joe Biden ought to be able to clean up the rest, the majority of the If delegates. he can remember to show up, <laughs> he pulls best when he's not seen or heard, <laughs> when he's only remembered. So, and honestly, I, I personally, because, uh, so <laughs> in my having never voted for a winner, part of that is I have voted for libertarians in my libertarian bent. I would love a president that forgets to show up. <laughs> if we've elected, Joe Biden and he forgot to go to work, I'd probably be okay with that a third of the time. Um the the way I see it is he would be a symbol of a more decent normal politics and hopefully would surround himself with really smart and competent people including a running mate who would be kind of would have the head start on being the candidate four years from mm -hmm. now. Do you have a guess? I think it's going likely to be a woman and possibly an African-American woman. Do you think possibly Atlanta's or Georgia's fake governor? Uh, Stacey Abrams, Georgia's who should have been governor. Mm -hmm. uh, Stacey Abrams. Who's still, we all pretend like she's our governor, though. I love it. <laughs> Whenever she shows up somewhere, people act like it's the governor. Yeah. Or Kamala Harris from California. Um, or, I mean, who knows, maybe Elizabeth Warren herself. I don't know, though she's not quite as young, but somebody younger, though she's plenty vital. But, um, so, yes, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I think I said to them, well, Joe Biden will have plenty of chances to rest over the next <laughs> few months because he's not going to probably have to fight that hard for the nomination. Well, he needs his sleep. The rest of the way. Um, but anyway, uh, he something both in the, the uh, decision-making of the leadership of the Democratic Party and the mass behavior of Democratic voters, they just turned out for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Well, the South was never going to vote for a socialist. Right. Right. Super Tuesday was always going to defeat Sanders. Though Texas and California, the idea before that night was that Texas and California might go very strongly for him. And they had the biggest states and the mm -hmm. most number of delegates. And he didn't win Texas. Sanders. Took California pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, but even a purple Texas is not a socialist Texas. No, no. So, but that that foreshadows what would have happened in the election. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, he would have been just smashed all over the South, which is probably going to happen anyway. Though I think some Southern states are competitive with Joe Biden as the candidate, like North Carolina. Well, if we're doing politics as usual, they could. It, there's viability there. Yeah. But if we play this caricature game. And the choice is shown between a businessman and a socialist, which is how they're going to lead that. Yeah. That that plays really well in the South. Right. Uh, or really badly, depending on what side you're right. on. Right. So let me just step back. That uh, narrative is successful. Yeah. Let me just step back and um, talk to our Christian uh, listeners about how we think about politics. We as Christians are citizens of, I would say, at least three kingdoms. Okay, just to make it more complicated, two kingdoms is already. I, right. I was ready for your two kingdoms yeah. thing, so I'm I'm intrigued by what the third will be. Okay. I have an idea, so let's see. Okay, uh, our fundamental identity should be as citizens of God's community, the Church. Um. And God's dawning community, the kingdom of God, right? So, and we call that one. Citizens of heaven, still put it all in there together. Followers of Jesus. We are also citizens of the world in the sense that we belong to and have a desire, ought to have a desire to care about and serve and be a part of the entire human family. And we are citizens of this country if, if that is our citizenship. And so, as followers of Jesus, who are called to love our neighbors as ourselves and to seek justice and pursue it, uh, then we, we have every reason to care about what happens in the world as a whole, to pray and act for justice and love, and every reason to care about what happens in our own country um, for the sake of our neighbor as well as for the sake of ourselves, our children, and their children. Mm -hmm. right? So, this kind of totally disconnected sectarianism that says, ah, not our business, not our problem about the affairs of state, I actually think is is misplaced. It's a misunderstanding of Christian political thinking and and may only be capable, only be possible for those who are privileged. It's interesting what, that the African-American political tradition cares deeply about what happens in the state, especially, you know, once African-Americans got better enfranchisement, because the federal government became the guarantor of of uh, civil and voting rights, mm -hmm. and um, and in general, because as states oppressed African American people, states have also moved in the federal government to make a more just uh, society not not just but more just than it was. So it's much more normal to see a candidate allowed to speak to an African American church, right? So, yes, because because of how much is at stake in politics. So, so I think that the pure sectarian uh, citizen of another kingdom, nothing what, that happens here matters. What does Rome have to do with Jerusalem? Right, is, is, uh, is the wrong position. But, but once we are engaged in kind of worldly political affairs, uh, I think our posture, and I deal with this in the new book, 
uh, after evangelicalism. Our posture should be distinct. We we should not be operatives of any political party. We should not be uh, uncritically loyal to any political party, certainly not to any person, any candidate. Uh, we should be leading with Christian values, not with partisan loyalties of any type. And the deeper our political tendencies or passions, the harder it is to be able to maintain that critical distance. I'm aware of that in myself, but I certainly would ask my Republican listeners to be aware of it in themselves as well. It's uh, dangerous when our preference becomes sacred right? and our political ideas become doctrine and suddenly Christians are Republicans, Democrats are something else, right. or Democrats are the ones that care about the teachings of Jesus and the Republicans are worshipers of mammon or however we want to break that up and you're, you, create, you lose the ability to see Jesus on the other side. Yeah. We've... I recently, so this is a cool thing coming out of, I, I pastor a very strange church. Um, and I, we have an interim worship leader right now who's a dear friend of mine. And she is a Canadian. So her, her political thinkings are completely different. Their system is different. Their spectrum is different. Yeah. It's a different way of doing politics. And so she was completely shocked when she entered my congregation after our membership vote and we fully welcomed the LBGT community into our fellowship, she joined up excited to be a part of a liberal church and has had to face MAGA hat wearing Christians mm. who love their gay brothers and sisters there you go. and can worship together. That's good. And that is a, comp that is a shocking paradigm and seeing it through her eyes has been really enlightening to me to remember how strange of a place it is. <clears throat> yeah. And how, when we reduce people to two tribes, we totally oversimplify the world and are likely to demonize the tribe that we don't identify with. Right. By the way, I do believe that our churches and a lot of these churches in the South actually represent this insofar as our churches represent mixed political loyalties in a time of desperate tribalism, our churches, just by their very existence, are doing something important. Mm -hmm. You know, if if the MAGA hat wearing people and the uh, people with Bernie Sanders bumper stickers are worshiping in the same church and, and treating each other with respect, that's a really, really good thing. Yeah. That's a, an important contribution to the kingdom of God as well as to this particular kingdom here. So, anyway, maybe I'll wrap this up just by saying that the reason I was glad for the events of the last two weeks partly is because I was concerned about <clears throat> the drift to the fringes and the weakening of a kind of a sensible center in our democracy. And so if, if we were going to gyrate wildly from Obama to Trump, then from Trump to Sanders, or more of Trump, in both cases I'm concerned about the viability of our democracy, which is flawed, very flawed, but still a whole lot better than a dictatorship or a banana republic. So I feel like a lot of people rallied, millions of people actually rallied together to say, let's go with somebody who's kind of more establishment, more central 
center and see, even if he is very old, and see if if we can run uh, run our democracy back towards kind of safer ground. Um, so that's the way I look at it. Um, I don't know what will happen, but the other thing I, I guess I would say is I think democracy has Christian roots and is a good thing in the world. It at its best, it it um, limits uh, the centralization of power. It prevents um, the worship of persons. It it rotates officials in and out in uh, reasonable time uh, periods. It's constantly refreshing uh, and and handing power back and forth instead of people having to kill each other mm-hmm. uh, to get power or to hold power. It establishes procedures that people agree on as to how the will of the people will be determined, and then it, it implements those procedures. And then the losing side has to grit its teeth and, and allow power to be handed to the side that they don't agree with until the next election. Um, so free and fair elections, decentralized power, checks and balances, rule of law, I fear that we don't appreciate these things as much as we should, and if we had a more vivid historical sense or a more vivid awareness of the world around us, we wouldn't be so casual about these things. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, if you're a student, it's become of, a game. Yes, if you're a student of the 20th century and its history, as I am, when politics goes wrong, really wrong, people die in large scales and a whole lot of injustice is done and it takes a long time to clean it up. Look at the history of Russia and look at the history of Germany. So so I want our democracy to recover. I believe in democracy. Christians can be faithful under any political regime. If, if uh, the regime should turn dictatorial, Christians would know how to follow Jesus and would more than would die doing so, but we've been there before. But still, for the well-being of the whole, um, I think a healthy democracy is best, and I hope that perhaps uh, we can restore what I would think to be a healthier democracy soon. Thank you, David. That's a good place to stop. Thanks, Jeremy. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life. We are on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all those pod catchers. It does so much good if you leave us a like, a good review, if you leave us some comments. Any interaction with the podcast on those platforms helps others find us as well. As always, you can reach us uh, via email. We're on Facebook. We're both on Twitter. And we're responsive. We want to hear from you. And uh, we want your help making the show even better. Thanks, y'all. So I locked myself out of the car yesterday at the worst possible time. It was the I had been given an hour to leave the house. It was my day off. And I got permission from the wife <laughs> who is sick. We can't. She always gets sick at the end of vacation. But mm. so we we're struggling with having friends right now because they're like, mm. you're sick. Did you just travel? You just traveled internationally. Pretty sure you're going to die. So we're going to stay away. Where were you? Costa Rica. Um, but I was in the car and I parked as a few minutes early to my lunch meeting and I accepted a friend request from one of the people we'd met on vacation. 
And she had written this paragraph, some paragraphs long thing about her encounter with our family. And I read it and I was so moved that I just got out of the car and locked my keys in it. (laughs) And so I ended up spending three hours away from my sick wife and awake baby without any of my books when there's a billion things I could be doing, including church and school. I have that horrible, you should be writing anxiety back in my life. Um, Welcome back, my friend. <laughs> it's it's good to be back, but I was I was up till midnight last night writing. Good though, working on uh, some Richard Hayes stuff. Okay, um, which is relevant for our Bible discussion in a little bit. Yeah, but this part I got called out. To if okay, it's recording, so this is on the record. If you can ever spot me as a Baptist preacher from a distance, just kill me. Okay. You're like, that guy is a Baptist preacher. Just, I'm done. All right. I shall execute you if that is the case. All right. Thank you. But I'm on vacation. And when I'm on vacation, especially when I'm flying, I I don't lie about what I do for a living, but I do not tell them I'm a pastor. Uh I'll say I'm in education or I'm I'm a philosopher or I'm uh, in sales. Yeah. (laughs) Behavioral (laughs) modification. Uh, I work with kids. Uh, I I work with families. I I'm anything other than I'm a yeah. pastor. So first day in the pool, first day at the hotel. Ashley's getting the baby comfortable. I'm lounging in the pool with a beer, and I'm talking to a guy about sports, and he goes, "You're a pastor." <laughs> I said, "How'd you know that?" And he's like, "I don't know. I can just tell." I'm like, "Are you like a church person?" He's like, "Nah, I'm a lazy Catholic." <laughs> wow. So he spotted me. That's scary, Jeremy. And I know, right? It's I guess the stink you can't quite wash off after a while. <laughs> I like the idea of I, I have that romantic evangelical idea of you should be able to spot me as a Christian. There should be a je ne sais quoi. A je ne sais quoi. Yeah, you should be able to be. There's something different about you. Tell me what it is, and then you present the gospel. Right, um, and then uh, that's how I was taught to do yeah, it in my too. Christian high school. Me too. Yeah. Um, they should just recognize it mm-hmm. in you and want it. <laughs> they want to not listen to the radio. They want to wear my Christian t-shirts. But <laughs> you've got some post-evangelical vibe going this morning. <laughs> I'm trying to be a post-evangelical nun, ex-evangelical. I'm not angry about it. And I'm right. trying really hard to not be angry yeah. about it. I'm working on a project right now of trying to articulate uh, what I'm keeping. What well, from the experience, because so much of it is embedded. It's how I was raised from day one, evangelical. Yeah. And it doesn't work for me anymore, but it's still in me. So how, what am I going to do with it is what I'm trying to figure out at the moment. But this other person writes this thing about uh, she's so she's very politically minded. She's internationally minded, very smart woman. And she's so exposed to the news that she's constantly a little anxious about things. Mm. Um, and so she's worried about traveling internationally right now. Tensions are high. Coronavirus. She's worried she might come back to the United States and find it in more conflict and then she encounters our baby who accepts the world as a good and safe place and reaches out to everyone to be held and Mm. a family so loving and gentle and trusting that they pass the baby around at the hotel she says she was shocked a few days in to realize that they're from the bible belt and that they're christians and they're uh the husband is a baptist pastor completely mind-blowing uh to her and then to find out about the journey my church is on. It was a, a 
a mind-opening experience that broke down a lot of her stereotypes and expectations and uh, helped her realize that she had put up walls as well. So that was that was really That's cool. cool. Yeah. You know, uh, I may be post-evangelical, but I still do believe that it is in me, kind of like what you were saying. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be giving a good reflection of Jesus. Right, we're uh, ambassadors. I'm I've been given that. that language. Yeah, we're, we're all of that. The so. indwelling of the Holy Spirit should mean something. Yeah. 